Welcome to Robot Friends, a podcast that actively harms its audience. Episode 8, Eigenrobot vs. Nick Chandler Fine. Hi, everyone. I'm here with Nick Chandler Klein. That's at Nick CHK on Twitter and NickCHK.com. He's an economist at Seattle University and a good friend of mine. We've known each other for, is it yeah, almost a, a decade now? now? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He, he was a year ahead of me in grad school. And I, I found it much harder to count years recently, uh, but it's more than five. Let's say that. I think that's right. And yeah, years, eras. It feels like we're moving into eras at this point. There we go. So we, Nick, we've been friends for a Cretaceous amount of time. <laughs> Cretaceous, yeah. <laughs> oh man, it's it's been really strange. What's what's getting older been like for you? I mean, you have a daughter now. Yes, I'm about to have a daughter. Does that does that feel epical? It does. I mean, you know, your life absolutely changes in in quite a lot of ways. I mean, it's not. Uh, I mean, I, everyone says that and it's very much true. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, my life has been very, very much on track, right. I feel like I've been very lucky, you know, uh, I, I went to school, I got the job that I wanted, you know, I, I ended up moving where I wanted. I, I'm married. I have a kid, I have a house. I just bought a house. So, you know, there's nothing been that surprising in the way that my life has gone and yeah. I'm pretty content with it. Honestly, it's pretty great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, especially for, I guess you're a millennial. Is that yeah. right? I think yeah. you're in that range. I mean, in some ways it is surprising as a millennial to have that kind of an outcome, which seems like it's rarer and rarer. And especially in the academic job market, I, I think all of us suspected that you were likely to do very well hmm. um, because you you were like clearly very good at what you were doing, even in grad school. But I just like it a lot. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. No. And, and if you can enjoy it, I think that's really important. I mean, I, I like taking classes and I like learning things, but ultimately I just really hated writing papers. And, <laughs> and I mean, it, it's a very uh, niche enjoyment, I guess, especially yeah. once you start submitting them and then people tell you what, the, what you have to change about them. That's that's the least fun part. Yeah. Did, did you ever get that paper on Magic the Gathering published? No. Okay. So this was a paper. Uh, so I was in grad school and just sort of working on various topics. And I, I saw that there was this website that had um, data over time on the, the prices of magic cards. And I, pl- I played magic for a really long time. I, I wasn't playing that much uh, by the time I got to grad school. But I saw this data. I was like, oh, hey, this is panel data, right? So this is, you know, we see the same cards over time. You can do a lot with that. And so without really having an idea of what I was going to do, I just called up the people who owned the website and said, hey, can I have your data, please? And they said, oh, yeah, we went to UW, too. You can have our data. Was this Card uh, Kingdom? I can't remember. No, it was oh, uh, MTG Price. It's been a while. I think that was the MTG Price. Was the okay, name shout out to them. Yeah, shout out to them. Uh, yeah, Alistair Young. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, so they gave me the data. And I was like, well, I got all this data. I don't know what I'm going to do with it. Uh, and then I started looking at it. And I realized that uh, there was this interesting property where you know, you would expect, okay, so, something new comes out. Uh, you don't know how good it is. Nobody knows how, what its quality is. But then a bunch of people try it out and they figure out how good it is. And that should sort of settle the price. It should sort of, sort of reveal to you what the true value of that, in this case, you know, trading card is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but instead of that happening, you saw the cards get released. And then over time, the differences between stores in terms of what they were selling the card for and what people were paying for the card got bigger. 
Wait, there were, uh, instead there were of large smaller. price differences across stores? Yeah, price differences across stores got bigger. Uh, and, not, and not just for listed prices, but for actual sales too, which was what? very surprising to me. Uh, and I thought, oh, this will be very interesting to, you know, uh, IO economists. So I wrote it up uh, and it was not interesting to IO economists. Uh, I think I think they just they didn't like the the theoretical explanation that I had, uh, which was pretty loose because, you know, there's only so much you can really pin down with with a data set. Uh, but the, I mean, the basic theory that I had was uh, as time goes on, a lot of these, these these stores are pretty, you know, small fish. Yeah, and it doesn't make a lot of sense for them to, to really pay super close attention to market prices. Mm. And so as time goes on, either the price, you know, people figure out something's better than they thought price goes up. And then some stores are just left, you know, not having adjusted their prices upwards and then they sell. And so you see a, a price that's uh, way lower than everybody else's. Yeah. Or the price goes down. Uh, and then when that happens, what was the, how, what was the story there? That was uh, price goes down. Oh yeah. And then again, some of those, you know, stores just stick at the old price and they, they sell out. Uh, and so that it was sort of the small players generating this dispersion. Um, but that was not, not what they were looking for, I guess. So that, that one I gave up on after a few submissions. I mean, that was also not my field. So it's kind of yeah. hard to, uh, necessarily know all the, all the tips and tricks and expectations. Uh, so, I mean, probably, probably good for, you know, keep me in my lane a little bit, but I enjoyed the paper. It's up there on my website. If you want to read it. That's, this reminds me a bit of, of some of the behavioral economics work where, or I guess experimental where they'll, they'll do something where they'll go and demonstrate in some very compelling way that a basic axiom of, of economic, of, you know, micro behavior is invalidated. And, you know, in this case, you would expect prices to converge pretty quickly because I mean these are, you know, these are totally fungible goods, and and, and they're you would expect stores, right? It's easy to go to yeah. a competitor. Yeah, and so you would expect arbitrage to kick in. So if I were a behavioral economist, maybe I would take or or, or sort of the behavioral economics analog of something like I/O. I might take this and say, wait, we just can't believe. IO economics because arbitrage doesn't obtain. So like, you know, we, we have to overturn this entire field. It's all fake. Does that sound right? Yeah. It well, it's, like- it's interesting. I mean, in, in the case of this particular paper, I think the transaction costs were high enough. Like if you wanted to arbitrage magic cards, yeah. new magic cards, they're just not worth enough to really bother mm-hmm. uh, unless you're doing huge volumes, which, you know, good luck with that, especially if the source of the problem is these small stores. Yeah. Um, but in general, I mean, when I was reading, reading up for this paper, you know, there were a lot of, a lot of other papers that didn't necessarily find that things, uh, diverged over time, but they did find that even in online stores, you see these big differences across, uh, across different stores, right? That you see huge price changes, uh, if you go to one store or another, which you wouldn't really expect, uh, given that it's super easy to go to a competitor. Uh, and you know, they've, they've got, you know, search cost based, uh, explanations of why this stuff happens. You know, if you, you go to the store that's got high price, yeah, you could go search for all the competitors, but you know, are you really going to bother doing that? How many of us just go to Amazon and pay whatever the price is there and don't really check? Yeah. Um, which is rational. Uh, you know, there's no, there's nothing irrational about saying, Hey, that's not worth my time. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, I mean, the behavioral economics and its place in, in economics is really fascinating to me. I, I, I used to, I used to teach behavioral economics. Uh, and I think that the, uh, it, it's, it's, it's had a weird history because it went through this whole long phase of being like, 
a pop science airport book kind of thing. Yeah. And I think that that has really affected the way that people think about it and the way people teach it, right? You know, if you, if you take a, a, a college class on behavioral economics, you sort of, you, you would want it to be the most up-to-date stuff, but the students just want to see the things that are in Thinking Fast and Slow, right? Or, you know, yeah. one of the Dan Ariely books or something like that. Um, and if you look at modern behavioral economics research, you know, they, it's, it's super different. It's super, super different from what you would expect because it's not a bunch of flashy, you know, we took 13 uh, co- you know, co- college students and we tricked them. Uh, it's this really complex modeling, you know, people like uh, Xavier Gabay, who I'm probably pronouncing his name wrong. Uh, yeah. He is, he's going through uh, all of, you know, micro theory and a little bit of macro theory and just rewriting it with behavioral stuff. And it's super technical and it's super complex or like Ted Bergstrom at Santa Barbara. Uh, and you sort of go into thinking, Oh, you know, this is psychology. This is going to be, uh, you know, maybe a little bit squishier, you know, maybe a little bit, uh, 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 more ad hoc. And, and that original stuff absolutely was, uh, but nowadays it's way more technical. Like I can't, I can't do behavioral economics math. I just, interesting. Yeah. 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 Oh, I mean, Gabay, I, I read some of his stuff. I mean, he's been publishing a while, right? I think I read some of his earlier work around 2008. And I mean, it it was impressive. The guy, the guy is clearly very high octane. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's written like eight, he's like basically, so in in economics, in grad school, if you did, if you go to economics PhD program, your micro class will often be taught with a book called Moskalel, Winston and Green, which is just a tome of, uh, it's just a tome. Like it's like, you know, a thousand pages long of tiny little type of just mathematical proofs of micro theory. And he is basically going through that book and rewriting every chapter with a behavioral bent. Uh, I haven't checked in on that project recently. I don't know if he's skipping a bunch or if he's still at it, but that was sort of, I think a big part of the goal. Wow. So, um, I am curious what what do you think the marginal value of this is? I mean, my I, I think my original objection to a lot of the behavioral economics that came out that was more of this kind of flashy uh, the this this is a little bit mean to say, but sort of tabloid science right was all right. So you know you can go and trivially demonstrate that you know people will have circular preferences in this contrived setting or whatever, but I mean, so what? You know, maybe you can find this in some particular small case, but then if you aggregate up, I mean, do you really expect that people are suddenly going to have, you know, just not going to be able to make decisions in the market and, and everything is going to be, com- you know, completely fall apart. And right. Um, so, you know, like you can demonstrate this in constrained circumstances, but then in practice, it it just doesn't matter. Um, is, would, would you say that there are some clear implications for what, say, Gabay is doing? Um. That's a good. I mean, I think you're. I think you're generally right. I think that a lot of, especially the most famous behavioral economics results, are a little bit so what, or will only show up in sort of a lab setting. Yeah. Uh, I think it, it, uh, the the non behavioral economist who is relevant to this conversation. I think a lot, a lot of your followers might know is Gerd Gigerenser, and I know that you know Gerd Gigerenser, mm-hmm. right? And his whole thing is. Uh, look, you're asking the wrong kind of questions. You know, you're asking these questions that are sort of designed to trick people. And that's not really going to tell you, A, it's not going to tell you how people actually behave in the real world because we will have learned, you know, tips and tricks for not 
falling prey to these to these mistakes. And also, uh, you're you're demonstrating that this rational model doesn't hold. But why why would you why would that be the baseline? Why would you expect that people are maximizers in 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 terms of utility? That's just the wrong question to ask. Who who cares when you show that that the that the maximizing model is wrong? Because of course it is. You know, some sort of algorithmic procedure. You know, one one example of which being like satisficing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, uh, an economist using the rational model would say, "Okay, you know, you're you're a hunter gatherer in the woods, right? And you want to eat. So you should figure out, you know, how you can spend your time most effectively so as to maximize your calorie intake and that sort of thing." Uh, behavioral economist might say, "Okay, you're a hunter gatherer in the woods and you want to eat." Uh, you know, you're going to uh, attempt to do that. You're going to try to maximize your calories given the time that you have. But, you know, you're, you're going to make some mistakes. You know, you're going to, you know, gonna, you're going to see a reed that looks like a tiger and get scared and you're going to run away because you get visually tricked or something like that. And so you won't quite get to that the goal that you had. Uh, and Gergigerenser would say, no, none of that's going to happen. You're not going to try to maximize your calorie intake. You're just going to start looking for food and you're going to stop when you find enough, uh, <laughs> which is a much simpler story. And probably accurate. Um, Maybe harder to model, <laughs> unfortunately. I'm not sure that it is because a, yeah. a lot of his things are, are really basic algorithmic processes. You know, so you, you could, oh, it's true. harder to model with calculus, but it's easier to model with, say, you know, if you were going to write a computer program, it'd be a lot easier to write a, you know, Gerd Gigerenser agent than to write a an economic agent. Yeah, that that's true. Yeah, I guess... Um, I, I, that makes a lot of sense. I usually think about, you know, just taking that first derivative and solving for zero, but really in a sense, setting up some kind of a like large array of agents is, is even more straightforward. If you can Monte Carlo something, then, then great. Um, yeah, it's interesting, especially the hunter gatherer framework. You know, I, I started out before I took economics in college at all, working in a behavioral ecology lab and, yeah, and I'm one of one the the principal there was one of the authors of I can't remember whether the the book was Foraging Theory or Optimal. Oh, that's a good Foraging. book. I read that book. Oh, you did? Okay, yeah, Dave Stevens. He's he's a really interesting guy. Um Yeah, and so I, I think the overlap between ecology and economics is something that people could pay more attention to and maybe is gonna be more important over time. I mean, I don't I think there's there's kind of this large confluence of, you know, of ecology, I think, like greater ecology, of which economics is a part. But, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, things like egregores. And, you know, I think there's sort of an attention economy and sort of an, you know, an ideal, what's the word that I'm looking for? An ecology of ideas. And, you know, in this case, humans are substrates, but it seems like a lot of the patterns of, I don't know, replication and and behavior of these things, if you want to grant a certain amount of agency to ideas is kind of moves in parallel. And, um, and are, are you familiar with the, the, the economies that spring up in, in animal ecologies? Uh, a little bit. Um, I mean, I've, I've read those things and then do they stick in my brain? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I well, okay. So the the my favorite one are the cleaning stations in the ocean where if you're a fish, you'll you'll tend to get these parasites on your scales. And so in coral reefs, there are there are these other fish that will eat the the parasites off of the fish that have them. And 
they they actually set up little stations where they sort of advertise their cleaning services by you know some behavioral needs and so fish can come up and the the smaller fish will come in and eat the parasites off of them but there there is sort of a price that comes along and the smaller fish will also benefit if they can just take a small bite out of the fish that they're cleaning to get some extra protein. And is the price responsive to uh, market conditions? Yes, it is. <laughs> it is responsive in areas it. in areas where there are more cleaning stations. The cleaning fish are better behaved and take fewer bites because the fish can go somewhere else to get cleaned. But in areas where there are very few cleaning fish, like you know, they're they're just captive consumers and they have to allow the fish to bite them or, or their parasites aren't removed. I love that. And that, I mean, that's, that's, that's some, that's some real basic supply and demand thinking just working very properly. sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's beautiful. Um, so it's, it's, I don't know. I, I really like, I, I think, you know, all of this is incredibly speculative, but I spend a lot of time these days almost thinking about the the intersection of, you know, these sets of patterns about things which replicate themselves. And I think maybe almost more interesting than be behavioral economics is, is kind of zooming in the other direction and, and thinking about, you know, how these broader patterns of replication and, and survival and optimization work in, in non-traditional economic settings. So um, that that's a complete tangent and just me, going off about my shit. Um, I, think, I think it is interesting, you know, because you know, survival dynamics really does determine a lot of what we see, right? Yeah. On a, on a macro scale, I mean, so my, microeconomics is all about the micro scale, right? We're, we're talking about individual decisions that an individual person or entity makes. And they're maximizing things within the domain that they have control over. But on a macro scale, it, not a whole lot changes when a single person changes something. A lot more is going to yeah. be about somebody being switched out for somebody else who makes decisions in a different way or has different preferences. Not to say that the individual choices don't matter, but a lot of it gets washed out or at least is small in scale relative to churn, I think. Yeah. So, and here by macro, you specifically mean macro in the sense of say, aggregated up to a large market. Yes. Or or just any kind of situation where there's a large end rather than, than proper macroeconomics, which... Uh, I don't know what's what's the state of macroeconomics these days. Oh man, I, mean, I don't know. I, I haven't really paid yeah. that much. I mean, the 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 intake of macroeconomics for me since I passed my macroeconomics qualifying exam uh, was basically to forget about it forever and yeah. read stuff on Twitter. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's it. <laughs> no, yeah, for real. I mean, for for everybody listening, Nick and I are both microeconomists, and I think, um, I mean, you know, to the extent that I'm still an economist at all. And, and Nick, um, so, and, and, and the, the difference in the field between macro and microeconomics is vast. And probably a lot of what you think about most of the time, if you haven't been inducted is, are these macroeconomic topics like GDP and, you know, monetary economics. And it's, it, it's a very different branch of, of economics than we think about day to day. And I mean, I, I just have no idea what's going on there. So yeah, you know, they, I, I've, the, I, I guess I do see a fair amount of new macro research, typically when we're doing like a job hunt for a macro person or something like that. And then I'll see mm. sort of what people are doing that's new. Uh, yeah. And it seems like they're doing a lot of the same thing that they were doing, you know, back when I was in grad school, which is, hey, we have this general model. Oh, I'm going to add a friction to it. 
So, you know, it gets a little bit dirtier and then that explains this weird thing that happens in the market. Um, yeah, I, I do wonder if, I do wonder if there's a, a certain degree to which they, they're maybe methodologically bound now. I mean, I, I have no idea, but if they, if they haven't been changing their methods, pardon me. Yeah. You know, I've, I mean, my, my impression of it has always been, I've, I've been confused why. I guess I was confused a lot by the micro foundations sort of revolution that they had. So for uh, a long time, macro was a very, you know, top down thing. You take these big aggregate numbers and you see how they move. And then I think in the seventies, I don't know if you know when it was, they're like, Hey, you know what? This isn't right. We have to model the individual decisions that people are making. We're going to follow microeconomics. And then we're going to build yeah. that back up to these macro models, uh, yeah. which I mean, makes sense at its core, right? That's sort of what's going on under the hood. But for one thing, you know, there's emergent properties that aren't going to show up if you're modeling individual agents by themselves. And two, if you're going to, you know, uh, make the problem at all tractable with, with typical economic models, you have to simplify it so much that you almost rule out that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, which I never really understood. I'm sure that a macroeconomist would come on here and say, oh, you know, you're a, either misunderstanding, probably both misunderstanding how we do it and B, you're leaving out a huge swath of research that doesn't do it that way. Uh yeah, no macro. I I mean, so we're we're both here talking, sort of talking shit about a field that we really don't understand anymore. I think I think a lot of this fell out of Lucas critique. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, I I think so. I mean, that's the same time. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, which you know, what, go look it up. So okay, hey, so we've been going for about twenty minutes. Sure. And one thing that you wanted to talk about is explaining complex topics, oh, which. Yeah. I'm sure you have thought about it a lot. I mean, you you do a great job of it. Just just looking over your your causality course. I mean that that's a incredibly challenging topic, and I think you do a wonderful job of it. Um, but just from that lens, we've been talking for 20 minutes. How well do you think we've been doing at explaining complex topics, and <laughs> where have we done well, and where have we fucked it up? I, th- I, th- I think we've done. I think we've done okay. I think there are certain things we've done pretty. Well. I mean, one of the things that I that we have run into a couple times is we've been using. We've sort of started from the arcane version and worked our way backwards. Oh, uh, sure. Said, okay, we're, oh, here's micro foundations. Oh, we, now I'll explain what that that was to you, and maybe you can catch up. Uh, where if if we really wanted to explain those things, we probably would have started from. Okay, here's the problem we're trying to solve. Here's the here's how they solved it. Uh, now now that you understand how they solved that problem. Uh, here's why it's important and take us, take, take people along the journey with us, uh, would have, would have probably helped a little bit, but we've also done pretty good. I, I was pretty proud of that hunter gatherer thing. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That, I thought that worked pretty well. Yeah. It's tricky to do it spontaneously. <clears throat> Pardon me. Like, um, you know, and teaching helps, I think. Are you, are you still teaching a lot? Yes. Yeah. So I'm, I'm at Seattle university, rural liberal arts school, uh, and this is my first year, so I've I've only done online teaching there so far. Oh, uh, which I'm very eager to end uh, at least at least at least partially. Yeah, I'm I'm a big I, I I'm I'm a theater kid. Uh, uh-huh. I really enjoy the getting in front of people and talking at them for a while. Uh, I think I'm good at it. Yeah, right. Oh, we're, we're, did you do theater? I did do theater. Yeah, yeah, I did a lot of theater. Oh, I wish I had. But yeah, I mean, get it, there, there's that performance aspect of teaching that's that's really gratifying to me too. Um, yeah. So so okay. So you're still teaching a lot. So what? 
what are you thinking about with explaining complex topics? Because I think it's important. And I don't, I don't know. Um, economics is pretty challenging and thinking through causality in particular is, is difficult. And so, so what, what are your major thoughts on it right now? I mean, it seems like you could take that in a lot of directions. Yeah. So, I mean, this is something I've been thinking about. I've been working on a textbook, you know, and, and going through each of the topics thinking, how can I explain this in the, in the clearest way possible? Uh, Cause it's tempting to just sort of put the material down on the page and be like, well, now you, now it's your turn to understand it. Uh, that does not work particularly well most of the time, I think. Yeah. So the way that I approach trying to explain, whenever I give myself the task of trying to explain a particularly complex thing, the first thing I think about is what is my, not not just what what's the, who is the audience, but what's my relationship to them, and how much authority do I have over them? Yeah, authority is a big part of how you can do an explanation properly. And I don't mean in the sense of like I you know I I control you or I have you as a, a, a captive audience, but going into it before I've said anything, how how inclined are you to think that I'm right? I yeah. Think is a big, big part of it uh, because, you know, there's a, there's a big difference between trying to be persuasive uh, or trying to uh, help somebody figure out something that they want to know and you, and they believe that you already know. And the latter is way easier. I mean, unsurprisingly, right? Yeah. Yeah. I feel when I almost don't even try when people seem hostile right to to actually wanting to learn something um i'm not sure so so do do you what are some circumstances in which you find yourself in each case i mean so i think big i mean so thinking about sorry let me start over with that uh the case where i have had the most experience explaining stuff to people in different ways is probably my principles of microeconomics class because i've taught that a bazillion times Right. To a bunch of different kinds of kids, to a bunch of different, you know, uh, colleges and settings and whatever. And across topics, um, the uh, there's a big difference in in terms of what what their script is, because I've noticed that people sort of have scripts in their head about how certain conversations are supposed to go. Yeah. Uh, And it you you, um, either really want to lean into that or really want to avoid it. You don't uh-huh. want to sort of sit in the middle because uh, if you can find a script that somebody has in their head that you think is relevant to what you're going to talk about and that would help them understand it, then it's going to be way easier for them to understand it. You know, when you when you hear people in general talking about how do you you know explain a topic, how do you teach, they'll say, okay, give a concrete example, give people something they can latch on to. Mm-hmm. And I think a more general way of thinking about that is, uh, you know, what are what are the the ways that people expect the world to work? Um, in the context that they already think about, and can you introduce a new topic into that? Yeah. Uh, so you know when I'm when I'm doing causality stuff, uh, you know, one, pro- probably the thing that I have gotten the most attention for was making a bunch of animations about how different causal effects work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in explaining those topics, what I was doing was saying, okay, we have these big abstract mathematical tools, uh, but what people really understand is you know, how things move for one, you know, you can see stuff getting pulled around and, uh, that, um, and comparisons. If you can see a comparison, it's very easy to visually compare things. We have a lot of reference points for that. 
You know, we're yeah. very good at it. We're sort of evolutionarily trained to do it. And so the task was translating one thing into another. So instead of showing you the, the math, and uh, a lot of the textbook work has been trying to figure out how do I explain this stuff without a lot of math uh, uh, into something that moves and that you can that provides you a visual comparison. Uh, and some of those things are easier to do. Some of those are harder. Some some uh, some uh, tools lend themselves to a visual representation and others don't. But yeah. putting it into a script that people can sort of digest is a big part of it. On the flip side, trying to avoid scripts because... Uh, especially when it comes, I mean, this is very common in political topics for anything that people have come across before. Yes. Uh, where it, and it's not just that, you know, they have a particular political opinion and it's hard, hard to sway them from it. Um, but that, uh, I mean, we have conversations with ourselves all the time, right? I mean, I don't know if you do this, but I I will, you know, continue a conversation or imagine from scratch a conversation that I'm having with a person about a topic and thinking about the way that it's going to go back and forth, right? And then if you actually have that conversation, it doesn't go how you expected. Uh, A, it's very jarring. And B, you try to force the conversation that was in your head into real life, even if that's not what's happening. Yep. Uh, I, I am muttering at myself for hours after. That's not true, but <laughs> it's it's sort of true. You know, like you can have some kind of an interaction and, and then just just obsess over it for hours. I've gotten better at stopping that, but even so. Oh, I've, I've not gotten better at stuff. I, I, I saw conversations from 15 years ago <laughs> continuing. Oh, <laughs> no. And not in a productive way, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Um, where was hmm. I? Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, so uh, so a good example of that is is price controls, right? So when I teach price controls in in principles of micro, you know, the, the sort of standard micro approach to a, a price control saying, you know, you can't put the price above this amount or below this amount, or you have to set it to this. We're going to, you're going to step in and we're going to say what the price has to be. Uh-huh. Uh, and the sort of, tr- you know, typical uh, result that you get is, well, this is going to cause some problems in the market because uh, yeah, you can set the price to whatever you want, but you can't force everybody to trade, right? You can't force people to participate in the market if the price isn't what it needs to be for them to, to do it. Right. Yeah. Um, and you know, this is something that, and, and, and when I teach that, it goes over pretty well. People tend to understand why that is, what the logic behind that is, uh, and what's likely to happen in the market when it's in the abstract. And in that case, making it concrete actually makes it harder for students to understand because all the concrete examples are things that they have scripts in their head for. Yeah. If you take price controls in the abstract and you say, okay, now we're going to talk about rent control, which is an example of a price control, right? You have mm-hmm. to set the rent. You can't, you, for a particular set of apartments, you can't charge above this amount. Well, then that's a, that's a conversation they've had in their heads. And it's, you know, they, they, they it, I mean, when you see students respond to questions about this, they will force it into that framework of the political discussion they've already had. And they'll find reasons why either the, the, the things we've been talking about in class don't count, yep. which is valid. I mean, the, the, the class has a very simplistic model, but there's a lot it's leaving out. Um, but to, to, go, to going further, they will shape what was in the class to fit the script that they already had. Mm-hmm. Uh, where, you know, let's say it's somebody who is very much in favor of rent control and they've had this conversation before and maybe they've had an argument about it online. Uh, the, um, you know, the, 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 the principles of micro admonishment that, you know, Hey, if you, if you do rent control, there's just not, people are not going to have enough apartments to rent. 
mm-hmm. becomes, uh, well, uh, you know, okay, this might be a problem for the developers because, uh, uh, you know, they, they're not going to want to do it and that's going to make them less money. Like that's the problem. Because the conversation about rent control is all about how rent control, it's all downsides for the developers and it's all upsides for the people who are there. So if I'm telling you a downside, it must be for the developers, right? Yeah. Uh, You know, actually, so just an aside, this reminds me of a story that my dad, my dad told me about, I I can't remember the context in which he told me this story, but he, so my, my dad is a psychometrician and at one point he taught a course in counseling psychology. So, you know, sort of, sort of like doing research into various methods that you might use if, if you're a counseling psychologist or, or perhaps a therapist, I'm not sure exactly what this field covers, but psychology is, you know, has, has some, some methodological issues. And th- this is even earlier than that, but, you know, psychometricians have actually, I think done a good job of, at least keeping themselves honest, if if not necessarily doing a good job of policing the rest of psychology. <laughs> so as as part of this course, my dad had his students take some, you know, therapy method and do a literature review on on its efficacy and on its validity. So basically taking taking one of these methods that a therapist might use and doing a review of the the papers that are analyzing it statistically. And and saying like, does this actually make sense as a tool to use? And one of his students chose the draw person test, which practically means in practice what what this test comprises is you have a person draw a picture of a person, and the test purports to let you infer lots of things about the person who draws the picture from the contents of the picture, how large a person's head is, what's in the background, and so on. I feel like I've seen like this in like a, a, a police procedural or something like that. Yeah, and there, there was actually a paper. There was an economics paper that was presented at um, uh, is it the Jackson School at UW? Uh, Evans School. Evans School. Evans School. Uh, that that used this, and I called my dad afterward and I asked him about this draw person test. There, there was, I think, they were using. They were trying to evaluate the effect of some intervention on on you know populations in famine areas or something like that, and they used the draw person test to try and get a handle on the the psychological side of it. Anyway, so it turns out as this student as the student reported to my dad in her paper that the draw person test has no validity, like no internal validity in, in the sense that it doesn't replicate within a person and they'll, they'll draw different stuff every time and it'll give wildly different results. No external validity in the sense that it doesn't predict anything else. So, so it's basically completely you know, statistically void. But then she closed the paper by saying, but I'm going to keep using this test because it tells me so much about my patients. <laughs> And my, I don't know, my, my dad said, well, I thought about just failing her on the spot, but then what, what would the point of that be? He, he was pretty cynical and tired by the end of it. Um, he, he eventually left to do government work. Oh, man. So yeah, no, I don't know. So I, I mean, that just makes me think about the way that, you know, you're telling me about you, you're say you're explaining something like rent control in, in this economic framework and someone really gets it in the abstract. Like this student really understood these concepts of validity, 
But then the instant they made contact with reality, these abstractions broke down and the, the student just, you know, defaults to whatever they had before coming in. Right. And that, that seems like a really difficult problem to overcome. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, it, what, what it really does is it separates topics into things that are easy to explain and things that are hard to explain. Yeah. Uh, in the, in the way that they avoid those, those landmines, right. Which you can, you can go a couple ways about it, right. You can say, Oh, I'm, I'm only going to explain the easy things. Uh, and then, you know, may, maybe later we can try the hard things and we're just going to do as much as we can to, to avoid the easy things, which I mean, to, for me, that's great. That's sort of the way that I live. I, I want an easy problem to solve. Yeah. Uh, that sounds good to me. Uh, and I'd like to, I'll solve that easy problem. And then people, other people can think about the hard problems, but then somebody has got to solve the hard problem too. Well, I mean, so, okay. So here by easy, you mean like easy as in it doesn't cause a great deal of, I don't know, epistemic or moral discomfort. Yeah. Yeah. Or yeah, it's, it's, it, it's overcoming some issues in that it's a complex topic that's hard to get across, but it's uh-huh. leaving out other issues in, you know, I have to fight the conversations you've already had before. Interesting. I, so I, when I was teaching introductory micro, I actually direct, I I ran into this head on and I tried to leave, I tried to leave students in a state of being incredibly uncertain about anything. I mean, my view is that I wasn't going to be able to, you know, teach any of these topics in sufficient depth to leave students with, you know, some kind of a comprehensive answer. I mean, we we can talk about empiricism in a minute, but, you know, like minimum wage stuff, for example, you know, you get something from the theory and, you know, even theory is sort of ambiguous about what's going to happen to the total value. And that's only in simple models when you're not, you know, considering imperfect competition and, and so on. So, I mean, I I just gave people, you know, this introductory model and said, all right, so here's this model. You might think about who winners and losers from this given policy would be. How would you explain to me, given the tool set that you have right now, whether this is net good or bad, you can't. Maybe you think you can, but I don't think that you can. Good luck. And and just just leaving people that kind of um I don't know, gnawing doubt about whether they know anything, which I think is valuable. I think it is too. I think that's a that's a great thing to be able to walk away from or walk away with from uh, I mean, if if all you learned from a college education was four years of like, well, eh, you know, eh, yeah, you know, that would probably be pretty valuable, I think, for a lot of people. <laughs> uh uh, but I, 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 I've, I've done that too. I think I, when I, when I started out teaching, I, I sort of did that as well. And I realized very quickly that the kinds of students who become graduate students and teach college classes really like that. And most other people don't. Yeah. <laughs> it, 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 it is a rare kind of person who really enjoys the ambiguity, uh, or is, or is willing to accept it. Right. People want answers. Uh, and, yeah. and, and, you know, um, I think the impression that comes away when, when you have these ambiguous results, which is the correct thing, we don't really know, you know, even stuff that we've studied pretty well. Yeah, sure. There's, there's some doubts still. Right. Uh, but I think that the, the conclude what is taken away, uh, is often, um, well, maybe this isn't that important if we don't actually know, or if this, if we don't actually know, then I can just go back to whatever I thought before. I don't really need to worry about this. If it's, if, if, if the response to me is uncertain, 
if the real yeah. answer is uncertain, then I was probably just right in the first place, you know? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. We don't know the answer, but I have preferences over beliefs. Yes. Therefore. <laughs> oh, man. So this, I, I think we can talk about empiricism in a bit, possibly, but I wonder if that is a better segue into just what, what, I don't know, the state of higher education or what the purpose of higher education is right now. I I mean I think we do have some disagreements and and you particularly are a scholar of you know the the effect of higher education on outcomes for students especially economic outcomes and we we can talk about that if you want but I think maybe there's also some and I I mean first of all I'm not sure that I disagree with you about any of it necessarily but <laughs> apart apart from some maybe maybe like an aesthetic valence but I mean, maybe, maybe another discussion it, that that's more meta is what is, what are we even trying to achieve with higher education, and and what's the role of the university in twenty twenty one, which maybe is economic, but maybe it should maybe it shouldn't be. I'm not right. sure about that. Well, I think that you're. I think you're right. Uh, you, the I mean, the universities try to accomplish a whole bunch of things, right? They're they're old institutions, and whenever you have an institution that 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 that's that old, it ends up doing a whole bunch of stuff, and we probably don't even know what it was for in the first place. Uh, and yeah. I think that's pretty. I mean, my my general approach to uh, thinking about institutions is low expectations, but being very pleased about it. Uh, <laughs> it works okay, like thirty percent of the time. I'm like, wow, how they do that? You know, that sounds yeah. pretty great. Um, and in, in the case of college, I mean, so there's a bunch of different stuff that they do. And, and one of them is very, you know, developing students and thinking about the labor market. And I think this is one that we, that people tend to think about very actively, right? Politicians mm-hmm. think about it. You know, they say, oh, you know, we need to change our colleges so they're better preparing people for the labor market. Uh, economists certainly think about it. That's, you know, for, for de- how many decades was what's the effect of education on earnings, like sort of the toy economic problem or econometric problem that everyone would do just to yeah, test yeah. models. Um, and uh, I think that that is, I think that's the, that's the thing that is actually, I think, most uh, in flux right now. Um, oh, really? I do. Yeah. So I, first of all, I want to, I do think that it's still, it, on average, it's worth it. I think the calculations are pretty clear on that, that from a, even from a causal standpoint for the average person, not even, I mean, definitely better to graduate, but even going to college is, is if, if you don't know yet, if you're going to drop out worth it, uh, if it, if you end up dropping out, it probably will have turned out not to be worth it. Uh, yeah. but, uh, you know, ex ante, the, the benefits outweigh the costs that mm-hmm. said, uh, those benefits are pretty high, but also the costs are really high. Yeah. And better, some alternatives are coming out, right? If, if you're thinking about it just as a learning experience, uh, there's a, I mean, I, for, forget stuff like, you know, uh, alternative training programs or boot camps or whatever. I think YouTube is probably better than most college classes in terms of learning a thing. Um, huh. You know, now that said, I think that one of the things that in terms of student development that colleges do really well is the stuff that all the students hate which is forcing you to do stuff, right? YouTube yeah. is great if you want to learn a thing, but most people either don't want to learn a thing or, you know, they want to, but they'll never really get around to it, right? Mm-hmm. You know, for the for the autodidacts of the world, school has never made that much sense 
except as access to people who can tell you about cool stuff, right? Exposing you to stuff that you can then go learn about on your own. You know, if you are a very self-directed person, it's probably going to be the best way that you learn stuff. Yeah. Uh, but for a lot, but most people are not like that uh, at all. Uh, there's, you know, the, and so this is, I think one of the things that gets a little bit overlooked in terms of turning a 18 year old into somebody who's really ready in the labor market is just figuring out what's out there and what you're good at. Uh, this is something that I think in economics has been uh, a little bit on the upswing that's been growing. You know, so if, if you think back to like the eighties, Charles Mansky uh, was one of the economists who was really talking about this, but he was like one of the only people. So Charles Mansky is an economist. Uh, actually, I don't know where he is. Where is he? I don't know where he is anyway. Um, but uh, he's sort of one of these people that like, he's never going to win a Nobel prize, but he's always like 10th on the list of the people who people think is going to win a Nobel prize. And he eternally will be. Yeah, yeah. Um, very influential. He's done a lot of stuff. And one of the things that he's done was talking about uh, the way that education in general is revelatory about your own skills to yourself, mm. that it sort of forces you to try new things that you would not choose to do on your own. Uh, and some and most of those things are not going to stick. Right. And when we think about, oh, all the time that I wasted in school learning stuff that I don't use. Yeah. But that was sort of necessary to get you to the things in school that you did know, because we don't know what those things are going to be for you before you get there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's, that's interesting. I mean, I, I personally, I don't know that I'm representative, but you know, I started in biochemistry and just happened into that behavioral ecology lab. And it turned out that, and then, you know, I had a, I had to turn in a biochemistry lab and it turned out that I hated biochemistry, but I actually liked math modeling and and ended up going into economics because I wanted to do something that would let me do the math modeling without actually having to interact with animals. But so, I mean, that, that was an incredibly valuable learning experience for me. That's yeah, me too. I, I mean, I, I, yeah. I went into college, you know, thinking, all right, well, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I like math, but I'm sort of done with it. I've sort of done, I'm, I don't really want to do that much more of it, I guess. I, I'm good at it, but who cares? Uh, yeah. so I went into psychology. Uh, no, I went into history first took a history class, hated it, uh, and then went into psychology, took a bunch of psychology classes and was like, oh, these methods are terrible. I don't believe any of this. <laughs> uh, I remember the one that, that sort of the straw that broke the camel's back on that one was like, it was a study looking at the effects of, of autism. No, it was the effects of, yeah, it was the effects of autism on something. I don't remember what it was. Yeah. Uh, and the the study was it compared people uh, who didn't have autism to people of a different age group who had autism and like three or four other things each. Oh and my! This is the effect of autism. N equals thirty. Uh. You know, and this was <laughs> apparently a paper that was good enough to be assigned in class. So <laughs> uh. even, even I, as an undergrad, was like, eh, you know. Um, like, and I yeah. Really economics. I actually did terribly in my first economics class, which I took, you know, as a gen ed requirement. I think I got that was the first C of my life was principles of micro, and now I teach it. Wow, uh, and I, I had to take another econ class to finish out the requirement, and I took game theory, and I was like, "Oh, this is awesome!" Yeah, uh, and yeah, um, which that, that being my story sort of makes me almost more skeptical of of my belief in in the in the sort of finding your own thing. Because one thing I've noticed as an education researcher, when you tell anybody that, uh, they will tell you what's wrong with the education system, and it always happens to be the thing that annoyed them, and those things are never overlapping. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh no. Everyone knows how to fix the education system. Uh, and uh, un- unfortunately they're all completely mutually exclusive. Uh, and, and it just so happens, you know, that e- everyone is like the person who knows how to fix it. Uh, and everything is monocausal. Yeah. Um, did you okay, know that M-, so- M. Night Shyamalan has an education reform book? <laughs> what a twist. Yeah. Twist. Yeah. No, I was, I was in, uh, I think Powell in Portland, uh, in the <laughs> economic section, ed- the education section, I was just re- looking through the titles and there was an M. Night Shyamalan book. It was like, here's how you fix education. Uh, and it, I, I flipped through it and it was like, yeah, here was my story in education and we're going to fix it by fixing all the problems that I had with it when I was in school. Yeah. Like, and because he's M. Night Shyamalan, he can publish a book and get it in Powell's. So that fine, fine, fine. <laughs> You know, it's, I, I don't know. It's, it's interesting on my side because I'm, I'm a little bit, I, I have, I have a number of beefs with beefs, beefs with the education system, but I think I was personally pretty well served by it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, especially once I got to high school, you know, I was able to learn at a pretty good pace and learn what I wanted to do. And where it moved too slowly, I had plenty of time in my free time to to go and learn these extra things. College, University of Minnesota was great. They they charged me almost nothing to go there. And I, I had finished so many of my gen ed requirements that I was able to just spend five years running around and taking classes that I wanted. I, you know, I had a, a large number of professors who were willing to oblige me just sticking off in their labs and and trying to figure out what I wanted to do and you know, publishing occasionally. And that was wonderful. And, you know, graduate school, I think what I, I learned a lot and I'm grateful that I was able to do it. I, I And even there, you know, I wasn't going to go on the job market, but it gave me a space to learn how to do a number of things that, that basically let me earn a living now and, and that I still enjoy. Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, in some sense, I was everything that I went through was good for me, but it, it seems like a lot of people are being relatively ill-served. So I, and I, I may be more concerned about them because, you know, probably, probably we would have been okay as long as we weren't in a rankly abusive environment, right. wherever we ended up. But, but I wonder about, I don't know, let's, let's just say the common man, you know, <laughs> and how well, how well is college relative to what's possible not 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 in this absolute sense, which I think you touched on earlier, but if we were to if you were to look at marginal improvements, I th- I think there's probably room for a lot of them. Do would you say that's right? I think so too. I, I think what is happening right now is that college is going through this big shift in terms of who it's serving. And yeah. it's catching up, but not quite. So if you, you know, if you look at the proportion of people who go who just go to college, right? It is massively higher than it used to be. Uh, and some of that is, you know, probably Flynn effect, something like that. You know, people are just more prepared. Uh, but I mean, in general, you're expanding the range of people who you're taking in. And, uh, that includes people who are a little bit less prepared. And I don't think that, especially because in, you know, college professors don't get training in teaching, uh, which is probably a mistake, especially now. Um, maybe I, I used to think that, but then, I'm also skeptical that getting teaching and training actually helps because how good is ed research anyway? Well, well, that, that's a great topic we could talk about too. Uh, 
Yeah. Uh, I, I think you're right. So um, I think that there are a lot of ped, a lot of pedagogical training that probably would not be helpful. Uh, what would be helpful is just a little bit more. Uh, you know, I, I don't even know what that training would be, honestly. Yeah. Uh, which is possibly one reason why it doesn't exist, uh, or at least is very limited. Um, but like, you know, you and I, we went in basically expecting all of our students to be grad students, right? Which is mm-hmm. clearly not the case. Did not serve those students well. Uh, and, uh, you know, my, you know, every, every time I teach, I try, I try to think, okay, what can I simplify again? Cause you know, there's still stuff that, that they're not getting and some of that's their fault. Some of that's my fault. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I think that over time, uh, we'll probably figure out, I hope how to yeah. school students better. I think that it will need a, not just a change in like the content, um, but a change in, you know, how students are handled. I think community colleges are doing a much better job of this, although their success numbers are not particularly high in terms of like degrees, yeah. uh, where they are much more able to meet people for where they are. I mean, that's definitely, that's what coming into college are supposed to be for, right? Yep. Um, there's something that the for-profits have been pretty good at. Uh, their, their success numbers are also not great. Uh, in fact, they're probably a little bit worse and they charge a lot of money, but you know, they are able to work with your schedule, right? You know, if, if you're a student like one of us who can really dedicate all, all of your time to, to being in school and think it's really cool and want to spend all your time there, you know, when I was teaching, it, you know, say, say in, in Cal State Fullerton, which is where I was before Seattle University, pretty much everybody's working full time in addition to going to college. That's really hard Oof. to juggle. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the the ethos, sort of hardline ethos, I don't think makes things more educational uh, and, you know, being, being flexible with, with work times. I mean, even just work times being like, I'm going to expect that my students are working is a, a change that has not set in yet. Uh, yeah. Whereas the for-profits are really good at it. And I think, you know, when you, when you look at people who are spending bazillions of dollars to go to for-profits, it's easy to think of them as being a little bit foolish. Uh, but you know, they're, they're getting something that the, the publics especially are, are not, and even, and the privates as well are not providing the nonprofits. Um, and, and they're making it clear that they're going to provide this, you know, it's, and only recently have we really started to catch up even a little bit where the community colleges were first, where they're saying, Oh, why are all the students going to for-profits? Oh, cause they're going to, they're telling them that you can do, you can have a full-time job and still go to college. We weren't telling people that we should tell yeah. people that. Uh, and so there's, there's some catch up going on. And I, I think that, you know, as, as, as we learn those new skills of, of serving the new people who are coming in and part of that's going to be splitting, you know, the, the colleges into, into different segments even more where, you know, Harvard's not going to have to do that. Uh, yeah. you know, I, at, at the liberal arts university that I'm at now, I might not even have to do that. But if I was still at Cal state Fullerton, I mean, we were already working on that and we were making some pretty good strides. You know, our graduation rate went up by like, I forget how much it was, like five to 10% in like five years uh-huh. because we were making these changes, right? We're, we're learning better how to serve broader ranges of people. Um, and I guess that's a specific kind of person who's not being served very well. Uh, but I, that, that, that's sort of the direction I think things are going. Yeah. And I no, think that well, that's good. I think that people can get a lot out of it. There's a lot of good studies showing that even at the very sort of bottom margin of people who can just barely get into college, it's still worth it. Yeah. So I wonder, um, Oh, I'm getting a bit of feedback on your side. Oh, sorry. Uh, it's still cool. 
Okay. No, I think you're good now. Um, what was I saying? I wonder, I'm sort of having almost a vision of, of like, imagine there are two types of people who go to college, some of whom like everybody cares about having some kind of a career outcome. But then there's another group of people who also care about some kind of intellectual development mm-hmm. or do you, I could sort of see a future that that has like a bifurcated college experience where maybe some of it really does just resemble, you know, more like, um, 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 forgetting the word career related training. Oh, like technical education or yeah. Yeah. Like tech ed stuff. Um, and I, I don't think that that necessarily is, I don't, I think, you can actually have that be be pretty successful. Vocational, vocational is the word that I was there looking for. Um, like I'm, I'm thinking about Lambda School in particular, and I'm definitely not chilling for Lambda School. I understand that they have some problems, and I don't know if that model, it or that implementation of that model is going to be one that's specifically successful. But I could see something like a, a two track system like that develop over time, where maybe there. are there are higher education things that are designed to get students well prepared for a specific career or or set of careers that are really lean and really efficient and then sort of another liberal education in in the broadest sense of liberal um you know like just hey learn about the world and and how to teach yourself to think and go and experience lots of different lots of different intellectual areas and and become something of a generalist perhaps with concentration and it i don't know how what do you think of that it i think that seems pretty likely and i i think we've seen some movement in favor of that because I, th- I think one of the sort of impediments to doing something like that is that uh you, where, where is that, where's that program going to be, right? It's either going to be completely outside the traditional university system, which often has some negative sig- signaling implications, right? You say, you, oh, you see a person who, who got this, you know, sort of certificate from outside and, you know, in, in, in computer science or, or, you know, programming or, or some of those technical fields, they'll, they'll accept that. And a lot of other fields, they won't. Yeah. Um, or it's going to be in the traditional university system, uh, which doesn't want to do that because, it, it's really hard to I mean, basically split your campus in two. Yeah. But recently, everyone's been going online. And I don't mean for the pandemic. I mean, just in general, people, you know, especially public colleges have been developing all these online programs. Oh, really? Uh, and yeah. And, and that allows you to sort of play around with how, because, you know, if they don't have to come on campus, you can make it as different as you want. You can make it a two-year program. You can make it completely career focused. You can do whatever you want uh, without necessarily... Uh, getting in the way of providing that sort of campus-based intellectual experience that you want to have. And so I've seen, you know, even in just the time I've been a professor, the development of a lot of very career-focused online programs from traditional universities. uh, And I think as time goes on, those programs will become less and less like the main experience. The real sticking point right, right now is whether we're willing to give, let's say, uh, whether we're willing to let people not do gen ed courses, right? Yeah. Which I, 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 I'm in favor of gen ed courses generally. Like I said, I think a big value college is figuring out what you're good at and gen ed courses sort of for, force you to do the hard thing that nobody wants to do of acknowledging mm-hmm. that maybe the thing that you, that you actually are going to like, you don't know yet. Um, uh-huh. but some, for some people that's not for some people, they know what they want to do and it's just getting in their way to take that English class or whatever. Right. 
Um, and there's a, there's a lot of internal politics with that. I mean, unsurprisingly, you know, a lot of departments basically only exist because they have a gen ed course that everyone has yeah. to take. Yep. I, mean, I, I have been in two different econ departments that are tiny econ departments in giant business schools. Uh, I mean, oh. Taylor University isn't giant, but Cal State Fullerton, I think it's, it's one of the biggest by, by enrollment business schools in the country, at least in, in physical form, like, you know, not, not counting like University of Phoenix or whatever. Yeah. Um, and so giant 10,000 students. And we had what, like 150, 200 majors, uh, in econ and wow. we basically existed because we had all these gen ed courses that all the business students had to take. Uh, if you created a business course that did not have any econ requirements, then our department would be in big trouble. And you can bet that we would fight it all the way. Uh, and we would probably end up with at least a couple things on there. Now, in that case, I do think that the business students probably should be learning some econ, uh, but I'm a little biased on that, clearly. Um, yeah, yeah. But, you know, do, does the student taking the, you know, Java development course really need an English class? Uh, but are they going to have to take an English class? You know, the, and as time goes on, the politics that will shift, you know, things will weaker. You can only maintain a position in which you are the weak one for so long. Uh, it will probably be to the detriment of those departments that really rely on those gen ed courses, uh, of which humanities, I think are a big part. Um, so, I mean, uh, I, I do think that that's going to happen. I think that that's sort of the way that it's going to happen. And it's going to be a slow breaking of bonds, I think, and, and bifurcation, but within the institutions that probably already exist. Yeah. So actually, this this has me thinking about one other item related to value of college, the, the empirics of you know the value of a college degree. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you made some claims about you know, you know, very, very broad claims about, all right, college is still probably valuable, probably less so if you're expecting to drop out. But if you're not, uh, you know, even if you think it's reasonably likely you're going to graduate, even if you're a relatively marginal student, it's still probably worthwhile. Yeah. Um, does that result vary significantly across and, and perhaps, you know, in a causal sense across specific majors or, or areas of study? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the the difference between, you know, an engineering degree or a social work degree is probably bigger than the difference between going to college and not going to college. Um, but the real question is not engineering degree versus social work degree. It's, you know, what are the degrees that you would be capable of, com- of completing? <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, what are your alternative, an individual person's alternatives? And no, I don't think anybody's choosing between engineering and social work. Um uh, but yeah, I mean, there, so there, there certainly there's huge differences between majors. Um, not as big, I think, as people imagine them to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, the you know, if you look at if you if you start if you if you ask somebody to say, hey, list list the the college majors that pay the worst. Uh, you know, they'd probably list a number of things that are pretty near the average. You know, things like philosophy. Uh, you know, things like a lot of the humanities do just fine, really. You know, we get this yeah. sort of thing drummed into our heads of, oh, you're going to get a humanity, you're an English degree, you know, you're going to waste all that time, you're not going to get a job. But I mean, they do pretty average. It's not that bad. Uh, the real bad ones are, are, like I mentioned, social work, um, getting an education degree pays p- pretty terribly because um, that oh, only really? leads you to one job and that job does not pay particularly well for a college uh, college major, for a college graduate. Oh, interesting. Yeah. That that's interesting. I mean, I know there exist places in the country where where K twelve teachers are paid reasonably well. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think because of good reunion representation. Um, that okay, that that's pretty interesting to me. Um, 
Although, I mean, then again, like you do, the the other thing to consider, I guess, is, I mean, the counterfactual. And I think I've seen claims that people who get ed degrees are are fairly low in, um, if, if you were to look at the distribution of their, you know, prerequisites for college, like high school GPA or SAT, like those tend to be pretty low anyway. And so maybe that is still you know, a very large marginal increase over Which if, what- if you listen to this, you're interested in that. Uh, Richard Starts has done a number of sort of blog style posts on this. I think the Profit of Education is his blog. Yeah. Oh, how's he doing? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. So he he and his wife, uh, Shelly Lumberg, were at U- University of Washington when I got there. And the people who I thought, oh, maybe they'll be my, my advisor was Shelly Lumberg. And then if not her, then Dick Starts. And then the second year I was there, they moved to Santa Barbara. So <laughs> that yeah. was my good experience. Oh uh, yeah. He's I, I know less about her, but he he always struck me as a really interesting guy. Like sort of very blue collar in the way that he like presented his ideas. Um yeah. Cool. Um all right. Well, I feel like we've really covered a lot of territory today. Is yeah. is there anything else that you'd like to hit? Um I mean, there's a bunch of things we could talk about, but I think those would all be sort of longer conversations. Yeah. Uh, oh, uh, very briefly. So uh, education research. Uh, so you brought that up. Oh, right. I yeah. wanted to talk about that for a couple minutes. Yeah, uh, yeah. So when I was in grad school, I, I was funded by an education, uh, basically, f- uh, a fellowship. So there was a, a post a, a doctoral training thing called CREST, which is from the Department of Education. It was through the education department at the university. And I was the only economist. There were like 20 of us, something like that. It was me, a bunch of education school people, uh, and like some sociologists and some other stuff. Um, and so, yeah, I was the only ed- economist in the room for a long time. Uh, and so I got to see a lot of education research. And coming from economics is wild just how different it is. Uh, yeah. <laughs> one thing, it, it was the, the fellowship was explicitly a mixed methods fellowship. And when... Huh. When I was interviewing for it, they said, oh, do you do any qualitative research? And I said, oh, yeah, I've, I've been thinking about doing a survey, which is not what qualitative research means. Qualitative research means like interviewing people and like, you know, getting into conversations and like, uh, you know, doing these real sort of elaborate sort of, uh, you know, if you think about like, um, if you've ever read like a, an anthropology book where they go to, go to live with people for a while, like that's a form of qualitative research. Uh, so I was way off in terms of what I even thought that was. Uh, I object to qualitative research on the grounds that it's discriminatory against P zombies. Okay. That, <laughs> I just, yeah. It's, you don't, you don't get a P value. <laughs> uh, I guess unless you're doing qualitative research on econometricians or something like that. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I got to see a lot of, of, of uh, education research and you know, the, 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 the floor is a lot lower. I'll say that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, in general, in social sciences, there's a lot of garbage just out there. Um, and I would say the probably the top 10 worst papers I've ever read have all been in education. Probably just because I'm more likely to read a bad education paper than a bad, you know, uh, sociology paper. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's some really terrible stuff that managed to be published <laughs> anyway, uh, you know, uh, where just the methods don't make a lot of sense. They don't have much training in causality, but they really want to make causal claims. Yeah. Um, you know, my, the first uh, seminar that I ever went to in the education department was a guy who was talking about uh, Catholic schools and how Catholic schools 
uh, you know, may, or Catholic colleges uh, made you more religious and more uh, civic minded for a long time afterwards. And I was like, well, hold on a minute. You're just looking, you're just doing a correlation here. You, there's no way that you can get a causal effect from this. You know, of course, people who choose to go to a Catholic school are going to be more religious later on because yeah. they chose to go to a Catholic school. And he said, oh, well, no, no, I, d- I don't think that you can really get a causal effect on anything without an experiment. And I was just sort of cowed into silence. Uh. That the obvious follow-up question would have been, well, but you're making causal claims explicitly. You're saying this makes you more religious. Oh, man. Um, the sort of... Uh, if you'd all think if you've ever if you're all familiar, I mean, on, on I do a lot of causal diagram stuff where you're just sort of mapping out how you think variables affect each other, and then using that to understand how you get a causal effect. They do something very similar in education departments, except all the arrows go from all the variables to all the other variables. Everything affects oh. everything else. <laughs> intermeshed, which is true. I mean, we're talking about social yeah. science; everything affects everything else. Yeah, yeah. But you can't say anything from that, and and so a lot of papers end up with the conclusion of well, things are complex and people are different, and you know, which is fine and, and probably accurate. But also, I didn't learn anything. Why did I read your paper? Why did you write it? <laughs> That said, there's also a lot of really great education research out there as well. Um, but you know, you have to be a lot choosier uh, to, to find it. The, the, the floor is a lot lower. The, the, the baseline training is a lot lower uh, in terms of what you can expect for, for a lot of research methods. Yeah. Oh, geez. Okay. I, I wonder, what do you think about the problem of fields having just lots of filler research? I mean, there was, I can't remember which macroeconomists they were, they were interviewing, but somebody asked him about some paper that was published that was really of marginal value at best. I think it was some macro theory paper. And his response was, well, you know, macroeconomists have to get tenure. And, (laughs) (laughs) and I, I find that honesty refreshing, but I mean, just just the volume of papers that exist seems higher than some social optimum. You know what I mean? I think that that's true. Uh, it's hard to. I mean, so there's there's two things going on. One is the is the quantity and the fact that a lot of it is pretty marginal, and then the other is the issue of quality. Right? That a yeah. lot of, a lot of the extra research out there is pretty bad. Um. And I think that actually, I'm of the opinion that the latter problem, sorry, that the former, the former problem is not really a problem. I would not mind an avalanche of very of research with you know relatively limited contribution. I think that that's fine. I think yeah. that sometimes that ends up working out great, and it turns out that what you thought was a marginal contribution was not, uh, even if it is truly marginal. You know, that's a form of replication, uh, which is good. Yeah, um, yeah. The, I mean, the garbage is, I think, more of a problem uh, where and, – and, and the problem really lies in not being able to de- detect the garbage, which can yeah. be on a couple of different angles. You know, sometimes a garbage paper is just so cool for some reason that it makes it into a top journal, and then that's a problem because that sort of enters, you know, what, what people who are doing research think, and that's going to affect, you know, the assumption that they make, and that can make future research bad. Oh, Most, man. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like I, I haven't checked up on this, but the last I heard, it sounded like a lot of what was in thinking fast and slow didn't replicate in the end. Yeah, and that and that just set people's expectations about what behavioral economics was for. I mean, like a decade. 
Right. And yeah, as I mentioned earlier, right, a lot of the new stuff is not anything like what's in Thinking Fast and Slow. And but people don't know that because that was you know the thing that got everybody's attention. And, yeah. you know, the the uh, I mean, at the very least, I, I recently behavioral economics has been doing better about replication stuff um, or at least trying replications and yeah. you know, looking looking a little bit less for the cute stuff. I think the, the era of cute in behavioral economics is coming to a close. Oh, thank God. Um, uh, but I, I mean, the real I mean, that, that, that's the airport problem book, right? That's the Malcolm Gladwell problem. Yeah. Like, you know, the Adam Conover problem where something is cool, but you know, you don't, if you're not, if you're not spending your whole life doing this, how do you, how could anybody possibly have the skills to evaluate the quality of a study that's way outside their, their, their area of expertise. Right. Um, you know, I, I can't judge (laughs) if the COVID vaccine trials were done properly. I have no idea. I just sort of have to go with it. And if there was a bad one, uh, I would have no way of distinguishing personally, even though I do research all the time. I mean, maybe if they were really egregious, I might be able to catch it, but you know, I just don't have the skill. And, and at some point you have, to, if you're outside the area, you just have to trust, but that trust means that also if there's, if there's not somebody out there, you know, gatekeeping the, the bad stuff from getting to you, uh, you know, I, I think it, it, it is, um, justification for a little bit more editorializing or editing on the part of people who take research and make it public which often yeah. is not the researcher sometimes it is so th- this is also interesting to me so did thinking back to about a year ago when when did you buy a mask oh good question i bought a mask um I'm trying to think it was it was before the CDC said to do it. Um, yeah, I don't remember. It was not immediate. Um, I'm trying to remember if we did our sort of panic shopping in masks, and I don't remember whether we did. Yeah, what what did you do your panic shopping? Uh, it was pretty quick. I think. I mean, we we had already. I mean, we're Costco shoppers, so we already uh. were sort of stocked up. We didn't have a whole lot of panic shopping to do. Yeah, um, yeah. It was just sort of, hey, let's make sure we have dinner for a few weeks. Uh, so I think, yeah, it was it was um, the day they they closed campus. Uh, we 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 immediately went to a restaurant to talk it over, of course, right? Uh, yeah. Oh no. Uh, but I was, I mean, I was, I didn't, I was very, I did not like being there. Uh, I immediately felt very sick to my stomach. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was very, I didn't want to touch anything. Uh, I. I, I was sort of uh, trying, I was trying not to seem over worried to my husband. Yeah. Right? Uh, and then I think we went to the grocery store soon after that. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. This is, I think, you know, this, this issue of a lot of research being bad or a lot of, I don't know, it just, it just seems like a lot of many of these channels of expertise seem broken to me. And maybe in a way that was really put in a full relief just by everything that's happened over the past year. And, you know, of course, some things seem very good. I mean, the, you know, reportedly some of the vaccines were developed over the course of two days, which is breathtaking and fantastic. But then the institutions around a lot of this research, in my view, have been pretty clunky at best. And I think we've been going for an hour and 15 minutes, so so (laughs) we can, we can leave it here. But I think, 
maybe one of the most important questions at this point is how to do a better job of maybe maybe not just necessarily identifying research as good or bad, but trying to find some better way of integrating expertise with decision-making processes, which I, I mean, it just seems like have not functioned particularly well over the last year. And of course, there's the issue of compared to what, and and that's valid. And maybe, maybe this is as good as it gets, but it seems like there must I, be. I think there's going to be an adjustment that people who do public communication for, for, for research and things like that have not adjusted to the fact that everyone can see that there's a lot more information now. Yeah. You know, like I said earlier, a lot of explanation is about authority. And, you know, if you are making your best guess on the basis of the information that's available and you have the authority that people will sort of believe that you know what you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, that relies on it then turning out that you're not wrong in a very visible way. And probably in the past, we would not have noticed that they were wrong. In yeah. Might have helped. Maybe even uh, once you figure out what the right thing is, then the, then the previous embarrassment didn't happen. Yeah. Um, but I think that, you know, may, I mean, maybe people are ready to be talked to with a little bit of ambiguity. I mean, at the very start of it, I said, I mean, I didn't say it on anywhere that can be verified, but I said, <laughs> the experts, are, this is a new thing. You know, you become an expert because you see the same thing over and over and over again, and you learn a lot about it, but this is a new thing and we don't know, and we're going to be wrong about some stuff and we don't know what we're going to be wrong about. Yeah, it could, turned, it could have easily turned out that they were right about masks to start with, uh, but they, they didn't. But we knew at the start that they were going to be wrong about something. Yeah, and coming at it with full authority of every you know we are certain about this. I think it was it was over certain in the way that it was, it was presented. Uh, and then when they make a mistake, then that breaks it. If you come into it with you know we're going to get some stuff wrong, but please bear with us. I think it might have gone over better. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder. I mean, I wonder if I wonder how much of that was just I don't know a, a way that people are used to acting and being able to interact with the public versus how much of it is some sort of a constraint on their behavior that's imposed by structures that aren't necessarily visible to me. I mean, I I could see. Yeah, I don't know either. Yeah, it's really tricky problem. I, I wonder if we're going to end up with, with this issue where, you know, we have some competence in evaluating the quality of, of research and seeing where people mess up. But whenever people critique leaders for taking some action or another, it, it seems whenever, whenever I found myself in a situation where I've seen something that people are criticizing publicly and I have inside information about it, a lot of the time, I mean, some sometimes it's like, yeah, this is this is obviously a scam, and you're right to be making this criticism. Sorry, but you know, on the other hand, there are times when people are making criticisms that I have inside information about it, and it's like you don't you don't understand what you're asking for. Yeah. You could do these things, but it would result in an outcome that you would hate even more. Or you know, we actually have no ability to do what you're asking us to do. And what you're saying doesn't make any sense. And I, I don't know, it's a little bit tricky for me to think about, put myself in the place of somebody like the surgeon general and perhaps even say the surgeon general under Trump. I mean, who knows what kind of latitude he had. Right. So, yeah, I don't know if it's the internet, but I, it's, it seems more and more like we're all turning into perfectionists possibly as we are more able to see when people mess up. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, some, I, I think that you're right. Probably the right stance to take if you're in a position like that is to just come to it with a bit more, you know, a, a stance of uncertainty and 
you know, just, just being a bit humble about what you're capable of doing and transparent as well. But I mean, at the same time, you know, we've, we've got this incredibly politicized environment and maybe if you admit to any kind of weakness at all, that provides an attack surface for people who, you know, are not going to take this in good faith and, and will just respond by, you know, aggressively tearing you down in, in some some way that actually has consequences. So it, it seems like a hard problem. And I, I spent a lot of time ragging on say the FDA for, you know, doing this or that. And I'm often very unhappy about the way that expertise plays out, but I do, as I'm speaking out loud, want to take a moment and acknowledge that there are circumstances that, that are, you know, generally represent difficult problems. And I mean, it's the sort of old thing about, you know, never attribute to malice, what you can attribute to, I mean, I think that the, the, the saying is, uh, what is it? Stupidity. Uh, yeah. even just, you know, incentives you don't know about would be another thing as well. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. Cool. Well, we're at an hour and yeah, we can ever over. <laughs> which, which is totally fine. It's, yeah. it's, it's been a pleasure talking with you. And Me if too. you ever want to come on again, I mean, just fun. hit me up. I've always wanted to be on a podcast and I've been very transparent about that. And this is the first time anyone's ever invited me. So thank you. You, you never have been? That's I've never been. That's outrageous to me. Okay, well, I'm I'm honored to be the first, and I hope there will be more. Um, if if you've enjoyed this, yeah, you've it, then never again. But um, and uh, yeah, welcome back anytime, man. Awesome, thank you. All right, yep, take care.